Lord, I pray that um, what Peter gives us this morning is um, what your spirit is saying and what your word has said all along. And that you give him the wisdom of the ages and that you will give him uh, the word for now. Amen. Good morning, everybody. Great to be here. Quick check. How do you feel when you hear the Ten Commandments read out in full like that? Just be honest. I'm not going to ask you to tell anybody. Do you think, yay, God, wisdom for living. Bring it on. Give me more. Love it. Or do you think... Well, it's a bit heavy, you know. It's it's you know it's a bit heavy. All those rules. Or did you just think, oh yeah, Ten Commandments, you know? Or maybe a different a different reaction altogether. The Ten Commandments are famous. Even in a very secular age, the Ten Commandments are famous. They're kind of they, they crop up in language and literature. You still, you know, in an office someone might say it's not written on tablets of stone, meaning you don't absolutely have to observe it because, of course, the Ten Commandments were written with God's kind of Holy Spirit on tablets of stone, which makes them unique in the entire Bible. They appear twice. The reading we've just heard is the second time first time was when Moses came down from the mountain, which was a bit of a, an episode which you're not going into today. Uh, and uh, he actually had to go up the mountain twice and get a second lot because of what went wrong. So that was when they were given this in Deuteronomy is just before they're going into the promised land when Moses is reminding them of the covenant and right at the heart of the old covenant the Ten Commandments. About 20 years ago, when Anne and I were in Coventry, the well-known evangelist J. John, anyone heard of J. John? Yeah. Came to church leaders in our city, and uh, he asked us if we would like him to do a 10-week evangelistic series in the cathedral. And we said, sounds interesting, tell us more. And he said, well, I'd like to do it on the Ten Commandments. And there was a kind of silence in the room because we're all thinking, well, if we were going to do a series for people who don't know about God, we might not start with the Ten Commandments. But um, he was actually doing a tour around Britain. Some of you might remember it. It was quite a famous tour. And uh, he had a very good pitch for it. And um, we all said yes. And more to the point, the cathedral said yes. They had a new live wire dean who'd come from a roundabout route from Holy Trinity Brompton and was kind of full of fire, fashion and evangelism, a really lovely guy. And he said yes. And the cathedral had never seen anything like the response it got. I mean, Sunday mornings were not crowded in the cathedral. 
But on this evening, the last, by, the, by the last evening of the series, there were 3,000 people in Coventry Cathedral um, and you had to stand if you were late at the back in the cathedral. This had never happened to any ministers in the cathedral, ever. And the local press didn't know what to do about it because it was generally a bit scathing. But you're not going to be scathing about 3,000 of your readers, are you? So, you know, it reported it quite warmly and positively. How did J. John do that? What made Ten Commandments interesting and exciting to people who aren't even Christians? Well, cultures seesaw between too much order and too much chaos. And of course, the world is not neutral territory. We have the enemy energizing stuff that goes on and trying to pervert it and turn it towards the darkness. Too much order is suffocating. You get at the extremes dictatorships where every aspect of life is policed. Think of Stalin's Russia. The Roman emperors at Jesus' time were so paranoid about people getting together to overthrow them that you weren't even allowed to organise a citizen's fire service in the towns. They were that sensitive about it. But too much chaos produces huge amounts of anxiety and tension. And extremes of that, you get the breakdown of law and order, you get mob rule, you, you get lynchings, you get all that kind of thing. And the New Testament was more of a high order society, which is why Jesus made as many anti-family statements as he made pro-family statements, because the potential for misuse and control when the head of the family uh, decides who you marry, where you live, what work you do, how much money from the family resources you get, the, the potential for misuse and abuse of that is very high. But our culture is much more towards chaos than order, although these things can flip very quickly, which means we hate rules. Yeah. Our culture is a place that just hates rules. Even if they're good rules, there's something about rules that... that Chaos cultures, cultures more towards chaos, really, really can't abide. And of course, connects in with basic human rebelliousness and all of that as well. But, but our culture really, really doesn't like rules, even good rules. So to, feed, to, to fill Coventry Cathedral, J. John preached them the other way round. Instead of preaching on thou shalt not commit adultery, J. John preached on how to have an affair-proof marriage. Instead of don't covet, how to live content with what you have. Instead of don't steal, how to prosper with a clear conscience. Instead of 
don't kill, how to manage your anger. J. John is very, very culturally aware, but it's much more than that. Because if you follow Jesus, the commandments are wisdom for living, and they are a promise much more than they are a threat. And all of us have an uneasy relationship with the commandments, whether they're Moses' version or Jesus' version in the Sermon on the Mount, which are much tougher because instead of just addressing behaviour, they look at the uh, intentions of the heart. And all of us have an uneasy relationship with that because on the one hand, we reckon they're absolutely right. We see them as good. We absolutely want other people to do them. We don't want other people to tell lies about us. We don't want other people to be violent towards us. We don't want other people to take our stuff, and so on and so on and so on. So we absolutely want everybody else to do them, but we are uncomfortably aware that we ourselves do not do them. And we are, and and it came across powerfully and beautifully, covered in God's robe of righteousness when we fail and our sins are paid for. But nevertheless, it is an uneasy place listening to those commandments. And if you've read Romans chapter 7, which you should, you will see Paul struggling with this. And he's saying, you know, I I recognise it's a good commandment. I recognise I should want to do this. I do want to do it, but there's a bit of me, a bit of me that really pushes the other way and towards selfishness and disobedience. But if you follow Jesus, the commandments are wisdom for living. They are a promise more than a threat. It's more you can become the kind of person for whom living this way would be natural. You can become the kind of person who is characterised by love more than by anger, consumerism, lust for what you don't have, and so on and so on and so on. You can become more the kind of person that Jesus would be if Jesus was you. The Ten Commandments are very, very carefully structured, which you would expect if God wrote them. To start with, they are highly relational. I don't know if you've um, ever been to an old-fashioned hotel or guest house or possibly Christian retreat centre where there are lists of rules, you know, no noise over 10, after 10, no shouting, no spitting, no swearing, you know, those kinds of things. They make you feel really at home, not. (laughs) But the Ten Commandments are not like that. They start with who God is. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the place of slavery. God gives his name, I am. 
he reminds them he's committed to being their God. And what he's done, I brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. And I relate to you as your rescuer, your redeemer from slavery, the one who forced Pharaoh to let you go. And for New Testament readers, behind that human slavery, there is the deeper slavery of the human race to Satan and his lies. So God is basically saying, this is who I am, and you can trust me. Because if someone is giving me wisdom for life, I need to trust them. Especially when human wisdom is for me to make up right and wrong for myself based on my desires and needs and the things I want and prompted by that little voice in my head. God understands what makes humans flourish much better than we do. And so, having introduced himself and given the context, which is, I've rescued you from slavery and brought you from a place of darkness into a place of light, God begins to go through what will make you flourish. And you'll notice that the first three commandments are all to do about God. And then we have a break with the fourth commandment, which we'll get to. And then the remaining six commandments about how we treat each other. But it starts with God. No other gods before me. No syncretism, half loving God, but half relying on idols. Treat God's name with respect because it's precious. Those are all about giving God the proper place in your life and not putting anything else in that place. And uh, we often talk about idols as if they're nice things. You know, she idolises him, he idolises her, you know, something really special and nice and beautiful or... Peter idolises chocolate or, you know, whatever it is that you think that person maybe has a bit too much interest in. And, um, but, but the idols in Old Testament times were not nice. The reason you worship them is to placate them and stop them, persuade them not to hurt you. They're not nice, they're not cuddly. You know, when you think that at extremes, you sacrifice children to idols, you can kind of get what they were like. The idols in the Old Testament were not nice. That you had to sacrifice to them, you know, if you were from the nations, because if you didn't appease them, they could do you serious harm. And I think we have a a tendency to to treat idolatry as if it's kind of nice things, and maybe, maybe that's right in part, but... Idolatry is what you rely on to keep you safe that isn't God. So there's putting God in his proper place and then comes the fourth commandment, which is the only practice. So it's something to do that isn't based on not committing a sin. It's about how to structure your life and it's a practice. And the practice is keep the Sabbath 
and after that, some commandments about how to treat each other. And they are right and wrong at their most basic. They're so low bar in some ways that they're not contentious even today. So, you know, the, the one about violence is don't kill, which is, you know, pretty basic. You know, even if you're going to punch someone, at least don't kill. You know, there isn't keep sex within marriage. It's kind of more low bar than that. Just don't have an affair with someone's spouse, and so on and so on and so on. And, of course, Jesus upped the bar on all of those. But the, the Ten Commandments are kind of morality at a very, very basic level that basically no one really is going to disagree with. And Jesus took each of them and he said, you've heard it said, you know, don't kill, but I'm telling you, uncontrolled anger is just as much a problem, and so on and so forth. But the overall pattern of the commandments is not a boarding house list of things you mustn't do. The pattern of the commandments is get your relationship with God right. Seek his presence. Put him in his proper place first. And have a Sabbath, because that's how you're going to do it. A day to rest, to remember, and to trust, because Sabbath taking is subversive, because you give up control, you give up doing work, you give up looking after yourself, and you trust that if you don't do anything at all on the Sabbath to keep your life going, God will look after you. A day to take joy in the God who made you and loves you because you woke up to a world you didn't create and to a salvation that you didn't earn. Sabbath is very countercultural. Just stopping and not doing anything and trusting that God will take care of whatever it is you think you have to do is very, very countercultural. To have a day when you don't worry about what you haven't got is very, very countercultural. And once you've done that, once you've put God in the right place and made sure your week is structured so that you have put God in, your right in his right place, then we can think about how to treat each other. But we don't get to that until we've done the other thing first. Because if your relationship with God isn't right, and you're not taking time out to nourish it, then the other things are not going to work for you either. So I want to start, since this is kind of an introduction to the series and we're going to go through the commandments in more detail through the coming weeks, just to get you to think about that first bit, the relationship with God that you have, which straight away flows into a practice. Because if it's just an idea, put God first in your life, it's easy to agree with it. I reckon just about everybody in this room, probably, can go out of the building thinking, yes, I should put God first in my life. 
and it wouldn't necessarily change anything about how you live. And that is why it's followed by a practice. Take a day to do it. Now, in the Old Testament, it was very, very rigid how they did things, and that might be to do with the kind of culture it was. Jesus' interpretation is much more elastic. He makes it very clear that the Sabbath was made for humanity. We were not created to fulfill a set of rules about the Sabbath, but the Sabbath was created for humanity, for our blessing, for our benefit, a day to delight and a day to stop. And I, I don't want to say too much about it because I don't want to steal the thunder of the person who's going to kind of come next and talk about honour the Sabbath day and keep it holy. But what I want to ask you is, I'm sure that you agree that God should come first in your life because if you didn't, why would you turn up What about the structure of your week reinforces that? Not necessarily the Sabbath, although, you know, that's the thing that God says next. But what about the structure of your week puts into practice that God comes first? And um, what I'd like to do is just give us a couple of minutes with the Holy Spirit and let him bring to mind anything he wants to. So can we just have a moment of quiet as we do that?